Hello. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the LSE. Um, welcome back um, to the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and Afwa Hirsch. Both uh, have been to the LSE before, um, and we're absolutely delighted to have them here tonight. Uh, the LSE is a place where we like to think. People think really hard about really hard questions. And questions of social integration and equality are amongst the hardest questions uh, that we face, although by no means the only hard questions uh, we face. So I'm really delighted uh, that they're able to join us tonight. Um, we um, have this event until 8 o'clock. Um, we'll begin with an address by the mayor, followed by conversation between the mayor and Afwa, followed by questions from you, which I'll moderate and explain a little bit more um, when I uh, reappear. Um, there are fire exits um, there and there. Um, this will be um, live streamed, um, but like the revolution, not televised. Welcome, Sadiq. Thank you. <clears throat> well, thank you. It's uh, great to be back at the uh, LSE. Can I, can I begin by scotching uh, the rumours that I tried to have this event prorogued? In fact, the last time I made a speech here was back in July 2017, and it was a time of unprecedented political uncertainty. We we're only a few months into the Brexit negotiations. Donald Trump was only six months into his presidency, and the cabinet appeared to be tearing itself apart. At the time, I remember thinking, well, things can't get worse. Well, now Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister. But it's, uh, it's great to be here with so many amazing people from across our city. We've got a diverse group of Londoners interested in how we can make our communities stronger and more equal. We've got intellectuals, academics, students, all people whose main purpose is to cut through the fake news and get to the truth. In other words, Donald Trump's worst nightmare. <laughs> but seriously, I look forward to my conversation with uh, Afwa and taking questions from you, the audience, during the course of this evening. And I just want to start by quickly outlining why I believe we must do more to build cohesive communities, particularly during this time of unprecedented social change and political upheaval. This is an issue that's dear to my heart because it goes to the fundamentals of who we are, how we treat each other, and what kind of society we want to be in the future. I've seen firsthand through my parents and through my own experiences growing up in London, the damaging downsides of divided communities as well as the huge benefits that can come through greater social integration. I'm proud to represent such an inclusive global city. Looking back, it's amazing how far we've come over recent decades. When my dad arrived uh, in London in the 1960s, he saw signs that read, no blacks, no Irish, and no dogs. And by the way, 
by blacks, they meant anyone who wasn't white. Yet now, Londoners are known around the world for only accepting our differences, but embracing, respecting, and celebrating them. It's been said that my election in 2016 as mayor was an embodiment of those open, inclusive values. And when you look at the nativist, populist movements gaining traction around the world, it's clear there simply aren't many, if any, Western cities that would elect a mayor who was a child of immigrants, an ethnic minority, and a religious minority, with that religion being Islam at a time of heightened Islamophobia. But as well as celebrating London, we must also be honest and admit that we're still far from perfect. Our communities have been changing rapidly, and our sense of social cohesion is being put to test like never before. Over my lifetime, we've undergone nothing less than a demographic revolution, increased immigration, global economic shifts, and social and scientific advances. But as we've changed, it could be said we've come to know one another less and less, something that has resulted in us living in more diverse but less integrated societies. And this matters because we've seen how it can breed mistrust, how it can make it harder for people from different backgrounds to understand each other, if you like, to be able to walk a mile in another person's shoes, and how it can fuel the politics of division. The vote for Brexit in particular profoundly highlighted this. It revealed the extent to which some people feel left behind by globalization, and how our country has become very divided. Urban versus suburban versus rural. North versus south. Old versus young. And working class versus so-called metropolitan elites. London is far from alone in dealing with the impact of these changes. Countries and cities around the world have become ever more polarized. With a worrying rise of far-right populism that's exacerbating and taking advantage of the, divi the divisions that have been opening up for some time. You know, one of the lessons from around the world is that a hands-off approach to social integration simply doesn't work. That's why one of the most important tasks now is to take proactive steps to build stronger, more integrated communities. But I want to make one thing absolutely clear. When I talk about integration, this is not the same as assimilation, or saying that communities should merge into a single homogenous group. People shouldn't be forced to drop their cultures and traditions, for our differences make our society stronger. We have layers of identity, which are the foundations of who we are, whether it's our faith, age, ethnicity, sexuality, class, nationality, or heritage. And we should never let anyone tell us these can't be compatible. But I do believe in real social integration. This means ensuring people don't just tolerate one another or live side by side, but actually meet and mix on a genuine level, connecting in meaningful ways, and forging relationships as friends and neighbors, as well as citizens. 
And it means creating a more equal society where everyone, everyone can reach their potential. For this, it's not just a crude issue of integration between different nationalities, ethnic groups, or faiths. It's social integration in a much wider context because it's about all of us and must include important aspects such as age, social class, employment status, sexuality, gender, and disability. I want London to be a city where everyone feels they have a voice and a part of a society and the decisions that affect us all. And to do this, we must create opportunities for all Londoners to thrive and for all Londoners to access London's prosperity regardless of background. Let me just after I finish with uh, this. We face a fundamental question. Are we going to respond to this challenge of the 21st century by working in common cause? Or are we content to leave people to go it alone with all the problems this would bring? I believe the latter is not an option. I believe diversity is not a challenge to be managed, but an asset to be unlocked. That's why I'm working to create opportunities for people to come together so that we can build a kinder, more empathetic city. And as we face difficult times ahead, I hope everyone here and Londoners across our city will join me in this vital endeavour. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sadiq. I feel that many people in the audience will really welcome the message that you're bringing, but also the fact that it's you bringing it. So I want to start with something a little personal. One of the hardest things I've ever done is confess in my book that I don't pronounce my own name properly. Do you pronounce yours properly, or do people pronounce your name properly? Uh, no. So we all call you, I'm sure everyone here probably does the same, Sadiq. What's the proper pronunciation of your name? I once went to um, Wandsworth Prison, not as a, a guest <laughs> of the clarity. Her Majesty, uh, uh, but I was there on a visit, and um, I was being shown around the prison as, as the Shadow Secretary for Justice, and from behind a fence, somebody shouted out, Sadiq. And uh, people often want to talk to me and, and say Sadiq, and this pricked an air because nobody calls me Sadiq save for my family. And it's clear somebody knew who I was. And it was somebody I went to school with uh, who was unfortunately a guest of Her Majesty. Um, <laughs> but so the short answer is no. So, so my name is uh, of an Arabic origin. It's, it's in Arabic, it's Suad Alif Dalakaf, and it's pronounced Sadiq, which the literal translation that you'll love is truthful, which as a politician, <laughs> as a politician has its uh, uh, assets. But no, so, so at a young age, people couldn't pronounce my name and said Sadiq. And so. Uh, uh, it's really confusing when people would ring my home and my mum would say, who's this city guy that people want to speak to? So. so do you, like me, have this slightly double life where your family pronounce your name properly and nobody else yeah. does? And do you actually introduce yourself no, according because to the mispronunciation? The, 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 there's, a, there's a twist to the story, which is Sadiq means the same as Sadiq in Arabic, so I'm chillaxed. Yeah, I'm not... That's not technically wrong. That's fine. <laughs> But there are, there are bigger deal. issues to grapple with. <laughs> well, uh, than, than, that uh, is true, but I raise it because I feel it's actually an important context for this conversation about integration. And I think one of the reasons that many 
people of ethnic minority heritage get nervous about integration is the suspicion that it's asking us to kind of seek white approval, to make ourselves more palatable to the majority. What do you say to that kind of suspicion of the integration agenda, which in the past may have been true? I've certainly heard politicians in the past conflate integration with, and as you described in your talk just now, assimilation, which definitely means something different. And there's also cohesion, which is something you talk about. So just talk us through these ideas and how we avoid those pitfalls of actually ending up trying to downplay yeah. our heritage of culture, which many of us are so proud yeah. of. This is really important because we do things different to many of our colleagues across Europe uh, uh, in relation to identity. So if you were speaking to, I make a generalisation to make the point, but French colleagues... Uh, their view of uh, identity is very different to ours, and, and being crude, uh, they believe in the uh, assimilation mode rather than the integration uh, mode. America's a bit different. And I'm quite clear, one of the wonders of London is uh, you can keep uh, the multiple identities you have and still be accepted and have a sense of belonging as a London. Look, I, I'm, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm of Pakistani uh, origin, of Islamic faith, South London, a, a, you know, a, a Labour supporter, trade unionist, a long-suffering, although not recently, Liverpool fan, because we won last year or something. Um, and you have, we have multiple identities and stuff. And so the idea that you can disentangle my faith from my ethnicity, from my politics, from being a Londoner, from being British, from being English, um, I don't think you need to. But, and here's the heartbreaking thing, I've got colleagues uh, you know, from the legal profession, uh, and from politics who thought the way to succeed, to be accepted, was to assimilate from westernising one's name to, and I say this, you know, to you know, marrying somebody uh, of a certain background, to sp speaking in a certain way. Uh, and listen, when I was a lawyer, I still spoke like this, yeah? And so when I was in Parliament, I still spoke like this, because I think you've got you to realise that actually the joys of London is, is you aren't simply tolerated, but you're celebrated, respected and embraced. And, you know, I'll tell you this, when you speak to, I don't know, you know, Matthew and Debbie here, my current deputy mayor for social integration and my former mayor for social integration, they look upon us with envy because, you know, we, we, we've, we've really, we've, we've worked to get in this right, but we can't be complacent. And that's why we've got to carry on as there is, you know, rapid change, there are more challenges facing us to make sure we talk about what makes us so special. Appointing a deputy mayor for integration seemed like a, a very strong symbol of your intention to take integration seriously. I'm very glad Matthew and Debbie... Well, can I say this? So I wanted to appoint a deputy mayor for integration, but he told me, uh, often happens with people you appoint who are very talented, it couldn't be integration, had to be social integration, uh, social mobility and community uh, engagement as well because it's part and parcel of social mobility and so the, the raison d'etre of, of my administration is to be the helping hand. And so integration is good uh, in, a, in of itself, but it's a means to be socially mobile and it's a means to have in community cohesion. So it's a really important thing. And so what Matthew, when he first began advising me on this, said, you know, we've got, to, we've got to think big and we've got to proactively. And by the way, if you're, if you're a centre-left politician, you can feel a bit uncomfortable about this. You know, we don't like interfering with identity and stuff. We're a bit... Um, and we shouldn't be, because if we don't, the other guys will. You've expanded very deliberately integration to include, as you said, disability, social class, age. Why do you think that it has been so associated with ethnicity and faith in the past? It's been seen as something that, that is to do with brown people, essentially. It's because they can see us. Because, look, we stand out. You know, uh, other people who are, um, you know, invisible minorities uh, don't. And, and ironically, 
the, the biggest lack of integration is on social class. You know, and that's why our definition of integration isn't just about you know, whether uh, people are mixing, but it's the uh, quality of the relationship, uh, the quality of participation, and is it on equal level? I'll give you an example. So you may go into a building, and the security guard may well be working class. Right? So you can, you can argue, well, we're quite integrated. We've got working class people uh, uh, in the building. Right? What's, the, what's the quality of relationship like? What is their participation? Um, is it on equal levels? And so it can't just be about ethnicity and uh, religion. It's got to be about class, about sexual orientation, about age. You know, we live in a city where there are many new mums, uh, and they tend to be mums, who at the same time celebrating the joy of motherhood have uh, the real struggle of loneliness. Uh, and it's a real issue of social isolation. Not really integrated. And that's why we are, we are paying uh, the work Debbie's doing for you know, young mums and dads to meet with other young mums and dads to, be, to integrate. And that, that in itself is great for them but also leads to you know, quality different in our society. And so it's really lazy. And, and politicians, by the way, uh, trying to play on people's fears, have focused on, on faith and, uh, and race because it's easy. It's cheap politics. You know? There's a guy who, you know, who's the leader of the free world who does just that. And I think it's really important that we realise that integration is far more complex than that. But people will ask, I think there are a few who would disagree, at least with the theory, that kind and meaningful inter interactions with people from different backgrounds is, good, is a net good. But the question then is, is it really something in which central and local government can play a role in? This is really about inequality, about people from particular ethnic groups or faiths or social classes occupying positions in society where they don't have access to the same opportunities, social and economic. What can you, as mayor of london do to really address something whose root causes lie much more deeply in our in our wider inequality in society yeah. i've got to be honest a lot of the levers aren't in the gift of city hall a lot of the levers are in the gift of national government and over the last nine years many of the consequences of the cuts have affected uh, you know the poorest communities have become more uh, deprived so in london for, people think outside london uh, london is only the home of the wealthy uh, we have in london at, at the moment 2.4 million Londoners living in poverty, 700,000 uh, children living in poverty, 37% uh, of children living in poverty. So we, we, we can do stuff from City Hall and we're doing our best. We can't do everything. So some of the stuff we can do is when it comes to giving funds, we can give funds to sports groups that not only lead to young people doing sports, but one of the uh, criteria is you've got to make sure your children come from different postcodes, different backgrounds, uh, so there's mixing taking place. Sports can be a real power for good. When it comes to the allocation of resources for, for the family fund, we can make sure we're targeting the money towards helping you know, mums and dads who are lonely in certain communities to get close together. We can make sure when it comes to giving people a sense of belonging. You know, if you're, if you're a, a, a Jewish Londoner now, you've probably never felt as scared now at any time since the 1930s. So we can do stuff to make sure the Jewish community has a sense of belonging uh, by making sure that a place of worship is safe, by making sure a place where children study is safe. And, and you can go on. So there are things we can do to give, a sense, to give people that sense of belonging. But the key thing we can do is to provide the helping hand. I've always said, you know, so you look at the, my family story. My family story is, is an exemplar of what I call the London promise. What is the London promise? You work hard, you get a helping hand, you can achieve anything. The problem now is people are working hard, there's no helping hand, and so your potential is not being fulfilled. So our mission, uh, through social integration, through some of the work we can do, some by values, some by simply going along to a temple, to a gurdwara, to a mosque, uh, to Grenfell Tower, uh, to 
opening up City Hall to Londoners, and the Londoners, by the way, who are EU citizens, who are scared about their future prospects in London. That gives people a sense of belonging, and it's part of integration. Let's talk a bit more about your family story. You grew up in Tooting. I know your school because it's just down the road from where I went to school. Your father was a bus driver. I don't talk about it much. And uh, <laughs> Quite shy I, I heard that. you say, which did make me laugh, you know, you wait all your life for a politician who's the son of a Muslim bus driver to come along and then <laughs> to come at once. We are very different. <laughs> How has your experience growing up informed your politics? And I, I, I feel that I have heard you mention that your father was a bus driver before. Uh, but there are also other parts of your childhood that I hadn't heard so much about. For example, you have is it six brothers, and you lived and one sister. And, and one sister, you lived at home until you got married, which is something I think many young people now will relate to. Can't afford to move out even after they get married. Um, what was it like? What were the conditions in your house? Did you have enough space? How did it feed your worldview? What was your school like, and, and how have things changed? Uh, can I say so? So. There's a number of answers to that question. So firstly, look, again, my family is a good example of a family helped by the state. So yes, my dad was a bus driver, and, and my mum used to do, um, she used to do piecework. Somebody would come around, somebody would come around with clothes, and she'd make a dress and get paid 50p by, by sewing the dress together and stuff, and she the volume of work, as well as raising seven children. But my dad had a job with London Transport, uh, as it was called then. We had a council home subsidised rent so a bus driver could live in uh, at the heart of London. We had good local state schools, primary schools and secondary schools. We didn't see them at the time as being tough schools, though, on hindsight. And you went to Ernest Devon, didn't you? Yeah. yeah uh, it's not the, it wasn't the fluffiest school. Well, in, in the we knew no better. It was, just, it, was a, you know, it was a good school. The teachers, the teachers encouraged us to work hard. And my parents had listened to the teachers. I went to university and on and on. And so, and so the state provided the helping hand for us to fill our potential. But it was, look, it was tough. There how, was, many, how many bedrooms did you there have? Eight, there was, there was uh, ten of us living in a two-and-a-half-bedroom uh, property. And so you couldn't invite your mates around. You know, you couldn't... There was nowhere to do homework. Um, there was, you know, one TV, uh, only the front room had a heater. Um, you know, it was tough. And so it's hardly surprising we spent all our time outside getting up to no good. Um, but you knew the way to avoid getting up to no good was you join the boxing gym. Uh, you, you know, you, you played sports. Uh, and so, again, my own experiences tell me the power of sports. And so the club we went to was Ellsfield Amateur Boxing Club. Frank Bruno, uh, who used to be all champion, used to go to the same club. My brothers went on to become, and are now in their spare time, coaches and run the club, and my nephews do. And that's about giving something back, because we saw coaches, and these are people who've got full-time jobs, working-class people, in their spare time, evenings and weekends, are coaching working-class kids who otherwise would be roaming the streets get up to mischief and stuff. So, you know, I don't want to pretend you know, that we're in rose-tinted glasses, it was grey. But I've got fond memories. But I've also, got fond, I've also got memories, which I'm fond of, taking on the NF, having to get into fights, getting into punch-ups. And there, there, was, there was few things that would, would never be accepted. Use the N-word or the P-word or the Y-word, that'd be a fight. As well as the need to get out of the house and have something to do, was needing to defend yourself part of the motivation Absolutely. to do boxing? You couldn't. Well, look, I mean, one of the joys when you're as little as I am, having six brothers who are bigger than I am, is, is quite <laughs> good. Um, uh, and so one of the reasons, some, uh, I think Matthew used to tease me, the reason why I, I talk so fast, uh, I'm a good debater, is to avoid getting beaten up. But sometimes you've, got to, sometimes you've got to be able to defend yourself. And so you do. And, it, you know, you can lose respect by getting beaten up. Uh, and, but at the same time, what was wonderful about the sense of solidarity is you could have a mate who's 
um, uh, you know, call the N-word, and we would all pile in and make sure we took on the NF. Or if I was called the P-word, other mates with different backgrounds. And that was, that was a sense of solidarity or community cohesion, if you like. You know, we didn't call it that in those days. Um, uh, and there was sometimes you had to be, you know, you had to know when to run away. I mean, the best form of self-defense is to run fast. Um, but, but you can't, on your own estate, be disrespected because that means you'll always be the victim of bullying and all the rest of it and stuff. But, you know, I never, when I was growing up, I never saw anybody going to work in a suit. I mean, there was uniforms. My dad wore a uniform as a bus driver. People wore uniforms to work for British Rail or to go to the factory. And so the sense of aspiration came from, you know, being the child of uh, immigrants. I mean, so in, if you look at the three generations of Khans, my grandparents migrated from India to Pakistan. My parents migrated from uh, Pakistan to uh, London. I'm the first in three generations, ain't going nowhere. You know, I'm, just, I'm staying. When we think about one of the most serious problems that you have to deal with as mayor, which is knife crime, it strikes me that you're actually particularly well-placed to relate to the subject because you grew up in an area where you felt a threat, um, where there, w- there weren't constructive things to do if you didn't seek them out, and, and where you felt the need to defend yourself. And these are exactly the same things that we hear young men who carry knives say, that they feel they have to defend themselves or they'll be vulnerable. And that's one of the narratives that seems to be behind the spike in knife crime. How does your experience inform your response to this problem? Do you feel... I mean, it almost makes, strikes me that if, if you can't deal with this, no one can, because you actually understand yeah, well, what, what it's like to be in that position. One of, one of the upsetting things about this whole debate around violent crime is the lack of seriousness with which politicians and commentators take it. And, my, and I, start, I start this conversation by talking about the breed families I meet. I mean, I've been meeting breed families since before I became the mayor, before I was a lawyer, because I had people in my community who are the victims of uh, violent crime. Uh, and if you look in the context of London, uh, serious youth violence in London began to rise in 2012. Violent crime began to rise in 2014 across the country. And there's a clear link between deprivation and the increase of violent crime. I'm not excusing criminality, by the way. Deprivation, inequality, lack of opportunities, um, uh, mental health issues. Uh, you, can, you can draw a graph around exclusions uh, and, uh, and violent crime. There's, there's a link. It can't be a coincidence that since 2010 we've seen youth centres closing down, youth services cut, after-school clubs uh, closed down. Uh, we've seen uh, cuts in mental health facilities for young people, but also we've seen a massive cut in police officer numbers. And so my response is, this, of course we need more police officers. I've been saying that since 2016. We need central government to, to give back the cuts they've made in policing, but also we need to give young people constructive things to do. Because, you know, you can identify at a young age a family where a young person may get involved in violent crime. Uh, does that child have adverse childhood experiences? Does he or she see mum, dad, who's the victim of domestic violence? Uh, does he she see big brother, uncle, uh, or somebody else who's the victim of knife crime and is traumatised? Does he or she go to a school where the teachers are trauma-informed and may exclude the child prematurely rather than preventing earlier on? And our teachers work so hard, I'm not criticising teachers. Um, but in Scotland, uh, where they've got a grip of this, last year in Scotland, one child was excluded. In the whole of Scotland. In London last year, 8,000 children were excluded. Now, where do you think these children go? Where do they go? And, and if you as a young person are told you're excluded... What impact does it have on you? So I think it's a complex issue. We've got to deal with the... the you know, Tony Blair in the 1990s and Gordon Brown uh, coined this phrase. 
which is tough on crime. What was the second part of it? Tough on the causes of crime. And my concern with politicians is because we speak in 140 characters now um, and we lack attention uh, to talk longer, we don't explain to the public, and the public aren't stupid. But actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. We've got to invest in young people. We've got to have the potential fulfilled. We've got to make sure they understand that actually that they can achieve anything in London. One of the few cities in the world you can achieve anything. Uh, but we've got to give them, give them alternatives, and that's what we're not doing. It does strike me as ironic to see a government which has consistently cut funding for community services and cut police blame you for the increase in knife crime. But the result is this clamour for more aggressive stop and search, for more heavy-handed policing. How do you square the clear, the clear impact of cutting policing with the ongoing fears that communities, especially the black community, have about the, the heavy-handed policing approaches well, look, used in the past? Let's do a stop and search. So you, you've got to be very careful about stop and search because, because look, let me, let me speak from personal experience. When, when I was growing up, it wasn't uncommon for me or my mates to be stopped and searched. Police officers were often rude, empty your pockets out. It was a hassle. And so when you saw a police officer, you'd cross the road. And we saw them as a police force, not a police service, right? They weren't on our side. That was the perception we had. Now, here's the problem with that. If the police want intelligence or information from me today, and they treated me badly yesterday, why would I volunteer that information and provide the consent the police need to do their job? But stop and search when used properly is a useful tool for the police. And so we've got to make sure the police do it properly, do it lawfully, um, but also there are checks and balances in place. So since I've become mayor, we have had the biggest rollout of body-worn videos of any police service and city in the world. Every police officer now wears a body-worn video. Why is that important? Because it records the interaction between the police officer and the young person being stopped and searched. So the police officer has the confidence of knowing the stop and search has been recorded, so he or she acts properly. Uh, but also he or she knows if a complaint's made, it can be investigated. The young person knows the interaction is being recorded. But on top of that, we now train our police officers in unconscious bias training. We now train our police officers in understanding the importance of disproportionality because it is a fact. Uh, if you're a young black Londoner, you're more likely to be stopped and searched than a white young Londoner. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, uh, that, that young black Londoners are more criminal than white black Londoners. There's a variety of reasons uh, for this. But when I tell you that less than 1%, less than 1% of young black Londoners are involved in crime, hopefully you'll understand that it's not just a black London issue. And it's an issue that affects those parts of London where there's more young people, where there's more deprivation, where there's more alienation and more inequality. So you speak to colleagues in Cardiff or in Sheffield or in Manchester or in Liverpool, it isn't young black kids who are being the victims of knife crime there, uh, but in London it, it is because we've got, we've got the proportion of young Londoners who are, uh, uh, who are black, ethnic minority, is higher in London than other parts of the country, but, but the police understand the importance of winning the trust and confidence of uh, black Londoners because they police by consent. There's 30,000 police officers take or leave, our population is 10 million. Unless we're the eyes and ears of the police, they can't do their job. Unless we've got confidence in the police, we're not going to be eyes and ears. So it's a, it's a virtuous circle, if the, you know, if we, that's what we've got to get it right. It must be a difficult relationship to manage because when you say things that I imagine relate to the black community's perspective, your own experience of feeling that the police weren't on your side, you gain the trust of people who have that experience. Um, but I wonder how it affects your relationship with the police to know that you have been on the other side. You were also a defence lawyer who uh, I'm sure was not always on the same side as the police. How do you manage that relationship and the need to gain the trust of the police 
also gain the trust of people who feel over-policed? I think in most things it's, it's earned trust. I mean, look, I think the Commissioner and the Met Police Service have got a very, very important job to do. And I've got nothing but respect for our police. They were, they're under-resourced, overstretched. I mean, how many of us leave home to go to work knowing there's a possibility we'll be the victim of an assault and could, could, could you know, sometimes pay the ultimate price? I mean, that's, that's, that's a pretty tough gig. And so I've got huge respect for them. Uh, and I'm, I'm an advocate and champion for them having the resources, the kit, the tools they need but also professionalising them, making sure they are properly trained, they understand the importance of this and unless you understand why you behave in a certain way you, it's not a motivation to behave properly and so look, you know, if it's a problem for the police, the fact that I used to be a human rights lawyer, the fact that I understand the way the law works, that I, 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 you know, I expect high standards um, I, I've not felt that maybe when I first got elected. Uh, I think, you, you know, you judge me by the last three years, you, you know, in relation to my commitment to the police. But also, I've got to be honest with the police, the police by themselves aren't going to stop the increase in serious violent crime. We're not going to arrest ourselves out of this. We're not going to stop and search ourselves out of this, irrespective of what the Home Secretary or the current Prime Minister may say. It's got to be investment in prevention. It's got to be a public health approach. It's got to be working with the diverse communities of uh, London. Uh, and ultimately, it'll be Londoners who will, you know, I, I, I'm a big advocate of the African proverb, takes a village to raise a child. That means if you're a police officer, if you're a mum, dad, if you're a big brother, big sister, if you're a head teacher, if you're a faith leader, if you're a youth leader, all of us have a role to play. Now, Sadiq, I have a few trolls online who bother me. You have the troll possibly to end all trolls. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your relationship with uh, the President of the United States. What's it like to be trolled by the leader of the free world? I don't think anyone needs reminding, but uh, he's had a dig at you a number of times. He's referred to Londonistan. He said that we're less safe under you. He's even commented on your height. It's personal, isn't it? My height. <laughs> so so, so th this, this all began in about in 2016. I, I got elected the mayor, and uh, Trump was running to be the president. And Trump said, if he became president, he would ban all Muslims from the USA. Do you remember that? And, uh, he, he, and then somebody put to him, what about the mayor of London? He's a Muslim. And he said, but I'd make an exception for the mayor of London. <laughs> that solves that then. And I said, and I said in response, uh, listen, there's nothing, no matter what my mum says, exceptional about me. Right? <laughs> don't, don't, uh, and don't make a special case for me, but do you realise by banning all Muslims from the USA, you're banning people who love America. There are many Americans, some of whom are related to me, who are proud Americans and proud Muslims. But also you are, you're actually saying that Islam and the West are incompatible. You're basically saying there is a clash of civilizations. Now, where have we heard that before? I tell you, we've heard that before from Al-Qaeda, from Daesh, from all these guys on that side of the, of, of, of the spectrum. And if you think about it logically, you know, what does that lead to? And so I made this point, and uh, as a consequence, um, he's not my biggest fan. <laughs> Has it done you any harm getting just, free publicity? No, but let me tell you this. It's, it's, much more, it's much more serious than that, which is this, look. And this is a serious point I was alluding to in my speech. Um, see, they say, I mean, put aside what, what you know, we, we know the, the, the great quote from, you know, Martin Luther King about the you know, arc of the moral universe is very long and it always bends towards justice. I've got a caveat to that. Only if we're always vigilant and never complacent. Because we're seeing around the world now the rise of nativist populist movements and leaders from America, 
to Hungary, to Italy, to Poland, uh, to France, and in our country. And so I think Africa, for those of us who are progressives and have certain values, you've got to stand up to these guys, and you've got to explain why they're wrong and why they're repeating the errors of previous generations. Look, what is the, what is the playbook of this guy and other uh, nativist populist leaders? You scapegoat communities. You tell lies about people. You try and uh, sow division. You try and blame the other. Um, and we've seen this before. You use propaganda. You call everything fake news if it's inconsistent. And by the way, if we as Londoners, bearing in mind the values we have, can't say something against and stand up against somebody who separates you know, parents from their children, believes in a Muslim ban, deprives funding for those clinics that do abortions, discriminates against the LGBT plus uh, community, treats women a certain way, then who, do we, who are we going to stand up against? And I, I, I don't apologise at all for standing up to bullies and standing up to people who have got the views that this guy's got. It's almost time to bring everyone else in, but I want to end by bringing it back to a kind of very British conversation because things have become more polarised and everywhere's becoming more like America is at the moment, unfortunately. Um, but while Trump, I think the majority of people in this room will agree is completely on the wrong side of things, I heard a discussion on the news when you were elected, which I felt went to the heart of the kind of conversations we have about integration and identity in this country. And it was Brendan Fraser and um, um, Aisha Hazarika. And Fraser said, I don't think it matters that he's Muslim. It doesn't matter. He's, he's a mayor. For, he, he's, it, the fact that he's been elected shows that we're above that. And Aisha said, I don't agree at all. I'm over the moon that he's Muslim. I think it sends a really strong message to Muslims everywhere and it inspires us. And in that interaction, I think there was so much about the issue in this country about how much we regard it as acceptable to celebrate our heritage and our culture, to not say that we're all the same. Where do you position yourself? Because you are the mayor for London, but you're also proud of your Muslim identity and all of the other identities you mentioned. How do we navigate that path here? So I've never called myself a Muslim mayor, right? I'm a mayor who happens to be Muslim. But the main opponents against me in the last election wanted you to know I was a Muslim. Right. For a reason. Because they were playing on the stereotypes and the prejudices some people have about Islam and the followers of Islam. You had, you had not just the Prime Minister, but members of the Cabinet making all sorts of aspersions about me because of my faith, because of my ethnic origin, because of the job I used to do. What was London's response? London's response was to give me the biggest mandate a politician in this country has ever received. And that's why this is the greatest city in the world. That is the perfect Okay, it's your turn. I hope you've been um, honing the perfect question while listening to Akwa and Sadiq. Um, just a couple of uh, principles. First, could you wait for the microphone to come to you when you have your question? Um, second... Um, can you try, if at all possible, to frame your question in the form of a question? <laughs> Third, can you tell us your name? And fourth and four is optional. Um, if you specifically would like Afwa um, to reply or Sadiq to reply, could you please make that clear? Otherwise, I'll simply decide uh, on your 
behalf. Uh, the hard ones are hers. <laughs> the, hard, the hard ones are yours. Um, and I'm going to do a little bit of pointing, um, um, and I'm going to start right at the back, at the right of the middle, yes, exactly there, um, uh, with your question, if the mic gets to you, the, 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 almost the last row in the middle. Hi there, um, my name is Yasmina, um, and first of all, thank you very much for um, talk, it's been really fascinating. Um, my question is to do with something which didn't really come up, but I do think is very much related, um, gentrification. Um, and obviously the premise of this talk is that we are, um, we have a diverse London, and that uh, people can mix, and people aren't pushed out. So my question is, how can... Um, the city develop and how can we make sure the city develops sustainably and integration can continue to happen and we continue to have diversity um, without people being pushed out um, due to affordability and so on. That's for you, Sadiq. Yeah. So, do you, do you, do you one at a time or a few? Uh, one at a time for the time, time being. Then we'll, I'll, I'll bundle them up as we run out of time. So this, this is a really important question. So, so gentrification means different things to different people. Okay. Now, none of us is against, I would hope, independent coffee shops. <laughs> but here's the problem. If you live on an estate where a developer comes in and wants to regenerate the estate, what happens to you? Who's asking you for your views and how do we ensure that in the future when the estate is regenerated, you still have a future there and your children? And the same goes whether you're a retailer, whether you're in a market uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, and one of the great things about London is uh, our social mix. You can, live cheek, you can live cheek by jowl with, if you're a working class person with a doctor, with an engineer, and the same goes with your shopkeeper. That's changed too much over the last few years. Why has it changed? Because of uh, a lack of interference, in my view, by politicians. It's a market forces thing. Let the market dictate what happens. So if you go to Brixton now, uh, actually, I shouldn't name areas, but if you go to certain parts of London, um, the... the oh, no. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> no, Matthew, Matthew lives in Brixton, so it's, it's a whole can of worms. Um, but there are parts of London um, where the areas have changed uh, rapidly, and that's one of the, my points in my speech about the, the pace of change, how we getting people on side. So what we've done in City Hall is I've now said, if you're going to regenerate an estate, you must have a ballot of everyone living there to make sure they're on side if you expect money from City Hall. If you're going to regenerate an estate, there must be no loss of council homes if you want permission from uh, me. But I've also put aside money to invest in, for example, artist studios and cheap employment workspaces to make sure uh, small businesses and up-and-coming businesses can uh, start a business, can incubate before they uh, fly. Because if we're not careful, we're going to become uh, a sort of a dormitory city. And so what I say to a developer, if you want permission to build however many homes you want to build, the condition is X percent are going to be affordable, half, and I've dodged the, do the, the dodgy definition of what an affordable home means, I mean properly affordable. But secondly, I want uh, subsidised employment workspace. I want to have uh, you know, proper facilities for local people. And by the way, the same goes for our town centres. None of us wants to live in a town centre where all you have is chicken shops, bookies, and pound shops. Um, uh, and by the way, where do they exist? in poorer parts of London, in, in deprived parts of London, and it goes to integration. Integration isn't just about colour of skin and faith, it's about all these sorts of things as well. But the measures you're describing, they're not in place yet where developers have to... <laughs> they are. So what we've done is, so I've issued... Uh, sorry. Yes, that yeah, so, was the question, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so, so, uh, sorry. Um, so, uh, so the, the 
changing a London plan takes some time. Uh, so we're, we're currently through we're currently the, at the end phase of the London plan changing to a new London plan. But in the meantime, I've issued what's called supplementary planning guidances. I've issued guidances uh, so people know what we're planning to do. The funding's already there, and the, and the plan's already there. And here's the good news. So the previous guy, uh, he had a definition of affordable housing. Um, and I, we don't mention his name. It's like Harry Potter. We don't mention his name. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so he had a definition of affordable ha- housing, which was 80% of market value, linked to the market, right? Uh, and it was a con. And for uh, to buy, it was homes costing £450,000. We ditched that. Our definition of affordable housing already applies. is either a home that's a council home, a home where you pay a London living rent linked with earnings, a third of average earnings, or shared ownership part by uh, part rent. So that's already there. In his last year of mayoralty, using his dodgy definition, 13% of homes given permission were affordable. In 2018, which is the one year we got figures, went up to 38% just in a year and a half, two years. And, and what I'm saying to developers is, if you move quickly, I'll let you do 35%, otherwise it's 50% if you take longer. So we're trying to get things moving to make sure there's a, a London for all of us. And I say this, apologies for any friends from Paris. I don't, I don't live in a city like Paris, where the, the way the social mix is is very different to London. Thank you. Question down here at the front. Hi, thank you very much for your talk. My name is Sian and I'm from Time magazine. Um, what you said about policing by consent really kind of struck me. And I'd like to know a bit more about your stance on facial recognition technology, which has been severely criti- criticised as um, not having the public's consent and in some cases not even having the public's knowledge that it's going on and has been shown to affect disproportionately black and ethnic minority people and women. Fine. So, so, so let's deal with facial recognition. So uh, I've, got a, I've got one of these phones so I use facial recognition every time I want to look at my phone. But I consent to it. And that's really important, the consent. The problem with the way facial recognition is working in London uh, is there are now private developers using facial recognition in public spaces without our permission. And none of us has any idea what's happening to the database, what algorithms are being used, or, or the potential for abuse. And so the one developer I discovered was doing this, I, I wrote to them, uh, it was in King's Cross, it's not a secret, uh, to find out what's going on. And, uh, and uh, there's been some uh, lack of clarity as to what they are doing. I'll, I'll, I'm being generous to, 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 to them. Uh, and we're trying to get to the bottom of this. So, so as far as planning is concerned, it goes back to Afos point, we've, we're, we're, we've not yet changed the planning laws around this. We're in the process of changing the planning laws around public realm. Uh, we're trying to create a London-wide practice around... Um, uh, rules around public realm because more and more public spaces now have been privatised. So if you ever come to City Hall, all the open space outside City Hall, the public doesn't own. It's owned by a private developer. And so if you try and take a photograph, a security guard can come along and stop you taking a photograph. It's, and so more and more public realm is being, is being privatised. And so we need to set up some sort of rules about public realm and use of public realm. There's a wider issue in relation to facial recognition used by police. And my, my, what I'm saying to the government is they need to regulate to keep up with the advances in technology. Um, because the problem in our country is there's, not, there's no regulation or rules around this. And so my message to the government is, is move quickly because otherwise not just the, the, the private uh, s- uh, sphere but also police forces around the country will, will want to move. There's been a legal case in South Wales 
where the police force there was uh, judicially reviewed, which may go to appeal. So it's, a, it's an area that's evolving. But one final point before we move on, on facial recognition. Look, I'm a big advocate of um, technology. I think the AI genies are the bowl. We can't put it back in the bowl. And it's, in my view, by and large, a good thing. Um, and I want London to you know, surf the wave of technology. This, we're going through a fourth industrial revolution. But we need regulators to, you know, to keep pace with the advances in technology. Uh, and my criticism of our government, but governments around the world, is their lack of keeping up to pace with the technology. There's a question kind of in the middle of the middle. Um, <laughs> keep going and I'll tell you when to turn left. Uh, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. Now turn left. Um, literally, not metaphorically. Uh, no, left again. Yeah. Left again to your neighbour. Uh, my question is to no. the mayor. Uh, <laughs> my name is Rakesh. Uh, what was the biggest deterrent in the inequality which you faced, whether it was social or it was racial or it was the financial? Let's, let's, let's get both of your questions since you're neighbours. <laughs> Hey, my, my name is Barrett Mesher. I'm uh, Chief Exec at Trust for London. We work currently with, uh, with the GLA on the Citizenship and Integration Project, and it's good to see Debbie and, and Matthew here. Uh, my question is really about inequality, income inequality in specifically. 58% of people in poverty uh, are actually living in working households. And we are very pleased to have worked with the Citizens UK on developing the London Living Wage. And I wondered about whether and if you would commit to uh, uh, developing the London living wage or making London a living wage city at one end, and secondly, implementing some kind of uh, contract compliance on the differentials between living wage and the highest paid. So, for instance, a 1 to 50 ratio would mean that the highest paid is actually getting something in the region of a million pounds in, in salary. So. If contract compliance can be used for that, then I think we would be addressing the very issue that you've got up there, which is inequality in London. Okay, two questions. The first, biographical, and the second, about um, living wage and the ratio of living wage to maximum wage. Yes, yeah, so on the first question, which is what was the biggest barrier I faced, social, financial, or, or racial, it's, it's, it's difficult to disentangle because, you know, how do I know? I mean, it's difficult because I can't, I can't look into the heart or, or mind of somebody who may be acting prejudicially against uh, me. The point I, 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 I try to get across in my, in my short words and, and the conversation with Affaways, it's a bit more complicated than that because class can be a factor, the fact that I talk this way. Uh, it could be the colour of my skin, it could be my faith. I, I, I didn't used to go to the, I don't go to the pub, I don't drink. So, you know, in politics, a lot of the networks are made up in the pub or in the bars, uh, the strangers' room in Parliament but I don't drink. Um, so am I excluded from, from, from that? Um, you know, so it's difficult to, to, to answer. I'm, I'm also, you know, I, I, didn't, I don't do a lot of the things that wealthy politicians or lawyers uh, did, you know, and so I've not got the same networks, the social networks, the school that I went to. Uh, our, our old schoolboys network is a bit different to the one uh, <laughs> that our prime minister went to, so, so people from my school, I meet in one to the prison. Uh, whereas... You might time. argue that a few of Give it time. The, uh, your well, predecessors from, classmates should uh, be there a, a people, also. Yeah, people, yeah. Give it time. Uh, for the journalist, that was after, not me. Uh, 
so just, it's, a, it's a different connection. I, I can't, I can't, I never had an uncle who could take me to work experience in a law firm or an auntie that could take me to parliament or I couldn't afford to do uh, unpaid internship. And so, you know, and that's one of the reasons why some of the policy we've got, and by the way, Trust Fund that help us with some of this, you know, paid internships, being a live wage employer, um, you know, having, you know, having a ladder for, for young people to have opportunities. One of the projects that Debbie's working on is something called uh, uh, WIN, which is to give, particularly we've noticed, you know, well, we, many of you will know this, but, you know, young black Londoners who are men have a real problem uh, in relation to the, the, the social ladder to get decent jobs. We're now helping, you know, young black male Londoners to get into the tech industry and construction because we realise there's not the connection that they need to have. So it's difficult to disentangle, but the, our policies around integration are to, to tackle all the all these challenges. Uh, uh, they're right, really, really uh, important. Uh, the, the, one of the, uh, the clever tricks that is always a smart idea to do is if you want a politician to make a promise, is to ask them the question in front of 300 people. Um, but I'm not going to fall into that trap uh, and, and make a comment because we are, we're currently writing the manifesto uh, for next uh, May. But let me show you some, a few things about the London Living Wage. So I'm a big advocate of the London Living Wage, which is very different, contrary to what George Osborne wanted you to believe, from the national minimum wage. So the national minimum wage is what employees are required to pay by law. And there are different levels depending upon your age in relation to what the national minimum wage is. But the national minimum wage is not enough to live on in a city like London. And so many Londoners do the decent thing, are doing a hard day's work, but can't afford to live in London. So what I did when I became mayor was to make sure not just the GLA, but every part of the GLA family, from the Met Police Service, the Transfer for London, the Development Corporations, etc., everyone was a living wage employer, but also we used the power of procurement to make sure in the supply chain everyone was a living wage employer. Since I've been mayor, we have more than doubled the number of living wage employees in London by also persuading the private sector to be living wage employees. And we've made the point, yeah, there's a social case and a moral case, but there's an economic case because the evidence is if you pay your staff a living wage, it increases productivity, it improves recruitment and improves retention. So it's a win-win. The worker benefits, so does the uh, employer. But there is an issue about differentials and about other things in relation to employees. So what we've introduced also is something called the good work practice. And so we're saying to employers, we will give you a kite mark if you have certain good employment practices. So do you recognise trade unions? Do you take on apprenticeships and pay them a decent salary? Do you pay the London living wage? Is your procurement chain a good one, uh, etc.? Uh, you know, does do employees have a place on the remuneration uh, board? And so we're doing quite a few things on the good work practice, and I'm really happy to work with Trust for London in relation to future iterations uh, going forward, because we are a city with probably the greatest inequalities of most cities, if not any city in the world. I mean, just you know, you talk about. Uh, I did, I did, I did a, a, um, a podcast for Free Economics on Saturday, and they played me a clip of Boris Johnson uh, when he was mayor. Sorry, I said his name. Um, and he was boasting about the fact that London, compared to New York, had more billionaires. And he was saying, listen, we're much better than New York because we've got 82 billionaires and you've only got 32. Now, impressive as that is, that's not the metrics that I judge success for a city. And uh, We've got a city where in the same boroughs where there are Michelin-style restaurants, there are not one but three food banks. And that's because of the inequalities in our city. So, you know, it's a passion of ours in City Hall 
to address the inequalities and I want to thank Trust for London for the work you're doing to help us uh, address some of those inequalities. It's, it's, I, sorry, Chair's privilege. I, I, the question was about supporting the bottom, lifting the bottom, but also about restraint Capping at the top. the top. Do you recognise in principle, does it bother you in principle that there is as long as you have people earning billions, there will always be a huge yeah. gap. But the way I try is there's a caravan. If you think about, you know, on, on, on a desert, and if the caravan on the front, at the front of the caravan, gets too far away from the back, that leads to problems. And that's why the, the differentials do matter in relation to the, the wealthiest and the uh, poorest. Of course, they've got to pay tax and all the rest of it and stuff, but you've got to be careful the differentials don't get too far. It's really important. It's right at the front there. Uh, thanks for your talk. Uh, name is Igor, uh, from Russia, actually. Uh, Mr. Mayor, how do you, in your policies, strike a balance between trying to ensure equality of opportunities, which I think everyone would agree with, and on the other hand, actually falling for equality of outcomes, like, I don't know, maximum salary or things, things of that nature, especially in our kind of modern world, where we have an increasingly finer gradation of group identities in all the groups obviously want equality and they get offended if they don't get it. How do you seek about finding this balance? You know, if, um, if uh, Mo Farah and I, by the way, one of my claims to fame is I've done the London Marathon with Mo Farah. <laughs> that is a good plan. <laughs> The difference is he finished three hours before me. <laughs> now, equality of opportunity, we both began the marathon on the same day at the same time. It's arguable we had equality of opportunity, right? But he trained and trained and trained and trained, right? And the same goes with life. If you go to, if you go to a certain... Uh, if you don't go to a certain nursery or reception, your parents are middle class, you don't go to the right schools, you've not got the networks, You've not got the, a bedroom to do your homework. You've not got a personal tutor. You, you haven't got the networks to get the, 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 the uh, employment experience. You know, your, your opportunities are different to your dad's a tube driver. Your mum uh, is working all the hours God sends. You go to a school where there's 35 in a classroom. You've not got space to do homework. You've got nobody. Uh, and so, it's, it's, so when you talk about quality of outcome, you've got to be very careful in realising that it's not a level playing field. And so our job in City Hall is to try and provide a little playing field. That's not to pull down those of you who've got a privileged background. I've got nothing against privilege. Um, but it's to help those who haven't got privilege to have at least some of what you've got. So, for example, I don't think we should be expecting young people to do unpaid work experience. It's just not realistic if you're from working-class background. It's not fair. And if you look at the CVs, by the way, of the people uh, at, who run the government... Many of them had really privileged backgrounds. And again, I'm not, I'm not begrudging their privileged background. Um, but when I was an MP, people would apply for jobs to work for me. And I'd look at the CVs, and I'd see those candidates who'd had weeks and weeks of unpaid experience, who were readily employable by me because they had experience, because of their background, and others who had very little experience because they couldn't afford to do so. And I'd always choose the latter, because they needed the help in hand uh, because they were just as talented and just as gifted, but they didn't have the same experiences and stuff. So outcome versus opportunities is a complex argument, but you've got to understand it's a skewed playing field. In an ideal world, of course, it's outcome, but it's not an ideal world. 
Okay, there's a question on this side in the, uh, by the wall. Um, the giveaway is the hat. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Matt. Uh, my name is Aboud. I'm from Syria originally. Um, my question is, do you think the rise of right-wing populism is that fueling inequality, or is it the inequality and lack of opportunity in minority groups, immigrants, etc., the problems, the issues, the crime that causes, is that what's causing uh, the rise of uh, pop right-wing populism? Thank you. So it's so, so chicken and egg, limited to what I mean. So if you, because of far-right populism, are prejudiced against people from a certain background, you may not offer them a job, you may not give them, you may not give them the help that they need, and so you can perpetuate inequality. And so um, I think there's a link. I think some of the rise of far-right uh, populism is because there are genuine grievances people have about not, having, not sharing the fruits of globalization. We've got to accept that there are some people in this country who've got concerns about the pace of immigration who aren't racist, but they feel that, that the reason why they can't get uh, affordable housing, the reason why they can't get their children to good schools, the reason why they can't get health care is because of the other. And what politicians do is they play on their fears rather than addressing them. And so what I would rather politicians do is explain the reason why you can't get affordable housing is politicians have failed to build them, not because of the immigrants. The reason why you can't get your children into decent schools because we're not invested in decent schools and have a smaller class sizes and on. And so, but it's more difficult to address fears than play on them. Uh, but at the same time, if people become prejudiced because of what the things they're hearing from far-right populists, they also act in a way that perpetuates inequality. And let me tell you a story from my own life. I explained to you about the signs when my dad first came to this country, and many of you will remember those uh, signs, you know, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Now, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs meant if you ran a guest house or ran a pub or ran uh, a place that provided goods and services or used them... <laughs> You had no experience of blacks or Irish. You probably did of dogs, but no blacks or, or Irish. And you may have treated them less good or, or thought of them badly. It was politicians, actually Labour government, that changed the law to outlaw those signs going up. Right. So the legislation changed the act of putting up the sign, saying no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, and also meant the behaviour changed. Now Martin Luther King once had a saying. Martin Luther King once said... You can legislate to change the way people behave, but not the way people think. But over a period of time, by changing the way they behave, it will change the way they think. So, the guest house owner, the pub owner, uh, people who drink in the pub, people who use the guest house, because we changed the law, started mixing and mingling with people like me, people like Afwa. So within one generation of my dad coming to this country, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Laws changed. Within one generation, the very same people voted for their boy to be the mayor of the city. Mm. <laughs> do, you to, do you want to pick up this question? I would completely agree with that, but actually it, it makes me think of another question I didn't get a chance to ask you, which is that it, it always fascinates me the way research shows that the areas that are most nativist and anti-immigration are the areas with the fewest immigrants. We're in London, which is a city that 
although not perfect, does have higher levels of social integration that does celebrate the fact that there is diversity in cultural uh, wealth as part of our, our city's identity. But what about parts of the country that don't have that diversity, that have this fear of the other without actually encountering the other? They don't have the opportunities to overcome those fears by actually mixing with people from different so backgrounds. This, this is a really important point, because one of the things that, that we've got to realise as Londoners is there are parts of the country that aren't as diverse. And so I accept, and I accept this, there are people in this country, and there are people in parts of America, by the way, relevant to the conversation we had with Afwa's friend, um, the president of the USA, who have never met a Muslim. Their only experience of Islam and Muslims is what they've read in the newspapers or seen on TV, right? And the word prejudice comes from two words, prejudge. And so they may have inadvertently prejudged the entire religion of Islam and Muslims by the behavior of uh, the terrorists involved in 9-11 or the terrorists involved in 7-7 or whatever, all right? And so that's why I don't say Muslims alone, but I say all of us who've come into contact with Muslims have a responsibility to explain they're not all like that, you know? That, that's, that's a perversion of the religion of Islam. And so that's why we can't assume people automatically be less ignorant. All of us have a role to play. I don't say that I've got uh, responsibility alone, by the way, in relation to, uh, you know, Islamophobia, and nor do you have responsibility alone in relation to, uh, you know, gender equality or, or race. And this is the point about solidarity. I don't think it's possible for you on a Monday to feel passionately about the rights of the LGBT plus community, on Tuesday to feel passionately about the rights of women, on Wednesday to feel passionately about the rights of uh, African-Caribbean uh, men, on Thursday to care passionately about the rights of uh, disabled Londoners, on Friday to care passionately about the rights of uh, Jewish people, and then on Saturday, because of the time of the Muslims, you're washing your hair. I think you've got to show solidarity with each other, and so that's why it's important, you're right, in parts of the country, uh, where there's less immigration, there are views that are more prejudicial. But one of the wonders of uh, you know uh, technology is we can try and get to those people and explain to them actually in London, the most diverse city in the world, more than 300 languages are spoken. We are arguably, in my view, unarguable, the greatest city in the world. We contribute hugely towards our country, country's uh, well-being. And one of my criticisms, by the way, of politicians, including of my tribe and the Conservative Party, is our failure to explain the benefits of immigration. Uh, we can't you know, by stealth, we come to this by stealth, we've got, to, we've got to talk about it, what the benefits of immigration are, what the benefits of diversity are. For me, diversity is a strength, not a weakness, but don't confuse diversity with integration. And so, yes, of course, we are the most diversity in the world. Question, are we the most integrated? Answer, we don't know. One of the things when Matthew and Debbie started doing this work is we realized there was no metrics of measuring integration. You can measure diversity, it's relatively easy. How do you, how do you measure integration? And that's why we don't limit integration to ethnicity and religion. We also include age. We also include class. We also include uh, disability. We also include sexual orientation. Uh, it's really important for us to realize the world is becoming a smaller place because of advances in technology. And that, that is a, as an opportunity or a challenge. I think it's an opportunity as long as it's managed properly. Thank you. There's a... Now there's suddenly lots and lots of hands. So, so we're going to have to start speeding up. There's one question queued up right there in the middle. Then we're going up to the top at the back on the right. Then once those two have done single questions, I'm going to start bundling them up and start hassling you to be really speedy. Go. Good evening. So my name is Dylan. And uh, first, thank you for your talk. And actually, I totally agree with one of your points is about ignorance. 
and uh, people have prejudiced this on, uh, on other religion, sexuality, and so on. I mean, I, I grew up in France, basically, so I saw the, the two kind of differences, as you say, about assimilation. And, and it's, my question is, it's all about education, and I saw the difference with France is uh, the, the gap between public and private school, for example, is huge. So as a mayor of London, what are your solutions? Uh, because as you say, we, have, we, we are the most diverse city in the world almost. I agree with that. But in the meantime, you still have communitarism. Sorry. And are people really fully integrated to each other uh, Straight people, gay people, Muslim, Catholic, and so on. Okay, uh, it, that's my question. A question about, I guess, a question about private education. Well, it was, it was wider than that. It was more about assimilation versus integration. Look, so, so in France, for example, they've banned the bikini from beaches, right? I, I can't think of anything more objectionable than a man telling a woman what to wear, right? I, it's just a bit odd. Now, here's my point. Why? Where are the French feminists? Where are the French feminists? And this is my point about solidarity. And so I think it's possible to be a feminist and a man, or a feminist and a Muslim. And I just think my concerns about assimilation is, is, is the best way to describe it is look. You can have a, a melting pot where you put all the ingredients in, all right, and it's a nice dish, but you've lost what was the original flavor of the, of the, the ingredients. Or you can have a bowl of salad, right, where you've got the, veg, the carrots, the tomatoes, and all the rest of the stuff, and you can still enjoy the bowl of salad, but each has an individual taste. Uh, and I'd rather have a bowl of salad than a melting pot. Schools, do you want to pick up that particular particular? Schools are very important. It's one of Apple's points about integration. So, so there are various ways to intervene and to, and to make society more integrated. You've got to be a bit careful in relation to looking at some of the, infra- some of the structures that are right. Housing, allocation, schools is another one. Catchment areas is another one. Somebody at the back, the first question was gentrification, right? So you can, you can, you can abuse the rules in whichever way they exist, whether it's in schooling, whether it's in housing, all the rest of the stuff, whether it's in, it's in the businesses. So in my view, uh, uh, schools is a good place to lead to greater integration. Uh, and where there are schools that are not integrated, they could be mono-ethnic, they could be mono-faith, they could be mono-class, sports is a good way, and joint classes to get them mixing together. So if for whatever reason, historical reasons, uh, a school is a bit of a silo, Let's try and find other ways to get them to mix, whether it's doing sports together, whether it's doing joint events together, um, and because that provides a sense of social cohesion, a sense of belonging, uh, which is really important. And one of the things we do in City Hall is we deliberately help organise and facilitate events in the community that bring people together. It could be um, you know, uh, an Easter event in Traga Square, it could be Diwali in the square, it could be Hanukkah in the square, it could be different events, but at the same time we encourage people to mix from different backgrounds uh, and so it's, we're not just you know living in silos it's really important the, the, the down a down a bit down a bit exactly uh, good evening everyone mr mayor uh, my name is daria loshkina i'm executive uh, master uh, student lss cities uh, thank you first of all thank you for this interesting uh, 
a debate and uh, a lot of things uh, that should be think through. Uh, my question is about Talk London project and uh, to what extent you feel that this project will help to improve social integration and what is your vision on this and uh, I feel that it was designed to improve our social engagement and maybe now it's not very popular, so please share your vision with us. <coughs> Mr. First, what, which, which project? Which, which project? Talk London. Talk. Talk. Oh, Talk, Talk London from City Hall. City Hall Talk London. I don't, Talk London is, is, is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Everything we do is fantastic. So, so Talk London, so, so one of the things that we, one of the things we want to do is look, there is two view, there is a number of views of, of Londoners. One is we are consumers, one is we are citizens. A consumer has a one-way relationship. So when you go and buy detergent, you're a consumer. Lots of choice, one-way relationship. You pay the price for the detergent. A citizen is a two-way relationship. And we want Londoners to be active citizens. Right? And that's what Talk, Talk London is. It's part of a package of measures we have to engage better with Londoners. To hear what Londoners want, what they need, and to help them have their potential fulfilled. But also particularly young Londoners. And Londoners who... You know, don't normally associate with government. One of the things that I did when I became mayor, people would talk about hard-to-reach communities. Right? And my view is, there's no such thing as a hard-to-reach community. We're hard-to-reach. And you've got to flip it. And so that means using different fora to get Londoners' views. So we've got uh, young ambassadors. We've got a peer group of, of young people. We've got Talk London. Uh, we've got a whole host of things we've got to, to make sure we engage better with uh, uh, Londoners. And, uh, because the, the ambition is for all Londoners to be citizens and active citizens and, and Talk London is a really valuable tool so we do surveys all the time. One of the surveys we published uh, today is a survey of Londoners in relation to a sense of belonging. Uh, you know, how, how, how much do you feel you belong to London? And the interesting, interesting thing is actually uh, those uh, Londoners who are from ethnic minority backgrounds have a greater sense of belonging than actually people who uh, you know, new arrivals or working class backgrounds. That's why it's, it's, it's invaluable for us to get feed, feed, feed in from Londoners. Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to go as quickly as possible to bundle up as many questions as we can. I will attempt to write them down. Um, I will then either randomly or intentionally allocate them between um, our two guests. So we hear from as many of you as possible, as quickly as possible. Apologies to the people with microphones. Um, let's start. Who's got the nearest microphone? The, the, the nearest hand there. Good evening. Tenille McCoy. I am Assistant Commissioner for the Department of Labor in New Jersey and Workforce Development. My question to you is, are there diversity agreements uh, for contractors to bring in women and minorities? And then also, how do you see apprenticeship programs expanding your workforce in diversity? Apprenticeships and um, um, uh, contractor agreements. Next, anyone, anyone near a microphone with a hand? There, yeah. I'm Lucy Smalbris, I'm a Swedish citizen. Uh, do you think that London will be London if you are leaving Europe? I don't even have to paraphrase that one. Uh, somebody, somebody, somebody over there, and then my, somebody at the front. My name's Yu Navani. I'm a former student and current governor here at the LSE. My question is for Sadiq, and I really I want to know your thoughts on a independent London city state. Okay. Yeah. Hi. 
Hi there, I'm Wise. Um, I had one question for the Mayor. Um, in, I mean, in terms of a lot of, lot of the um, issues that was addressed here, um, a lot of it can often be seen in the um, corporate world in terms of issues surrounding diversity, um, people of um, ethnic backgrounds up in senior management, etc. Um, how do you um, how do you deal with them in the in the evolving world, I guess, in the evolving corporate world? Okay, so just to make sure I got that right, um, senior management uh, of large corporations yeah, and, and diversity. In terms of um, progression, uh, Got it. Over there, over here on this side, um, uh, the nearest hand. Hi, thank you. Uh, the question is for Sadiq. Uh, so, uh, how to? One of the problems that happens when you try to minimize, uh, to try to low inequality, is in social class. It's very different from racial and other things that you try to minimize because it backfires. Is it like in social psychology textbook? There is this thing that you raise conduct problems, which increase violent crimes and also mental health problems such as uh, depression and suicide. When you try to uh, put people from different social classes together. It, but the question how to minimize this backfire is not in textbook. So how you do that and how people do that in general in politics? So mental health consequences. Mental health consequences. On minim- in, in, in the middle, and then, and then we'll do one or two more. Where are we missing? The lady in the Hi. Hi, my name is Hayat. Thank you for your talk. My question is specifically for Afua. And I wanted to push more on the idea of private schools and how sustainable do you think they are considering only about 7% of, of people in this country go to private schools, but they pretty much run the, the top of our society? Okay, two more. One in yellow on the right, and then to her right, someone in pink. So over there in the middle of the right-hand row. Thank you. Hi, my name is Lisa Samoris. Um, I work for Home is London. Uh, we build and operate build-to-rent homes in London. Um, you touched upon housing policy several times. Um, in particular, um, I have a question about your the draft London policy. Um, I think the build-to-rent policy is a, strikes a good balance between um, achieving social integration and encouraging development. How do you make sure that it actually gets applied across all London boroughs, uh, which often have inconsistent policies, and so that you deliver the right number of housing (laughs) across London? Very last question, just there, but right where the microphone is now there. Perfect. Thank you. Um, My name is Joyce Fraser. I'm from the Black Heroes Foundation. Um, First of all, Sadiq, I'd like to thank you for twice hosting us at City Hall for our launch. We're a very small charity. Um, But the problem that we have, we go out and we reach with the community. We go to the grassroots, and it's really important, the work that we do. But we're just volunteers. There is not enough funding. The Culture Seeds program, great, but 20% chance of actually getting any funding. And it's the small charities who are doing a lot of work that really don't have the resources to get access to the funding. What can you do to help us? Okay, so uh, apologies to those who had their hands up whose questions we haven't got. I've got questions on contractor agreements, apprenticeships, London outside the EU, um, uh, an independent um, city-state, 
um, dilemmas uh, in senior management, mental health consequences, private schools, and build to rent housing. I think they're um, all for Afro. They're all for, <laughs> they're all for, so, go first. I'll take on contracts. No, so, c- can we start with build to rent since you talked earlier on about housing? And I'm going to promise that, we're, that I'm not going to allow us to finish without London outside the EU. Well, can I say, can I say that the. the, the it's a, it's, a, it's a joy for a politician when there are eight questions asked because you can choose the easy ones uh, and avoid the hard ones. Let me, let me deal with build to rent. So look, well, we've got in London a housing crisis. I think this is the biggest challenge facing our city, uh, uh, the lack of affordable homes for Londoners. Uh, if we were speaking 10 years ago, I'd say I'm worried about uh, how bus drivers, junior teachers, cleaners can afford to live in London. Now it's police officers, <coughs> teachers... Uh, uh, lecturers who they can't afford to live in London. That's a problem. Now, uh, each year in London, on average, we build around, on a good year, 30,000 homes. In a good year, 30,000 homes. According to independent analysis, we need 66,000 homes a year to keep, with, to keep with the demands in our city. Our population is growing. Nothing wrong with growth per se. It's lack of planning for growth that causes problems. So we've got to build more homes but they've got to be the right sorts of homes. What we don't want to build is luxury penthouse flats that are left empty because they're bought by foreigners. I have nothing against foreigners. <laughs> so my best friends and family are foreigners. <laughs> but our homes can't be gold bricks. Right. So what I'm saying to developers is there are conditions on getting permission, a certain number affordable, but I realise we can't build the homes quick enough, So, uh, but also the two things that renters complain about is security of tenure, then you get a 12-month tenancy and unaffordable rent. And build-to-rent is a fantastic opportunity to meet the needs of those Londoners who can't afford to rent long tenancy and affordable rent. So we're working with developers to, uh, and councils to get more build-to-rent in London to make sure we can have uh, Londoners who can't afford to buy yet renting and, um, and, uh, uh, with a long tenancy. But the, the downside of build-to-rent is people can't put money aside to save for a deposit. So at the same time, we've got council homes... Uh, London Living Rent Homes as well, so we need a, a whole a ecosystem of homes that meet the different needs of different Londoners. It's really important we do so, and build to rent is part of the solution. In your um, integration policy document, there is some research about how home ownership correlates with integration and a sense of community cohesion, that the more homeowners there are, the more people feel invested yeah. in their community and the more they interact with people in that so, community. So what Afros are into, so in the 1980s, um, uh, Margaret Thatcher deregulated the rental market and she introduced what's called assured shorthold tenancy and these tenancies meant a landlord could give a six-month tenancy to a tenant and could make you leave without any reason whatsoever and what's happened is people are moving quite often between homes when I was an MP I would often have constituents whose children were traveling an hour and a half each way to school each day because they've been forced to move away because the landlord had increased the rent they couldn't afford to live in Tucson anymore, they're living elsewhere. So when you're moving every six months, every 12 months, from this community to that community, you don't lay down roots in that community. Why would you become a governor of a school when you'll be moving in six months' time? Why would you join the resident association? Why would you get to know your neighbour if you have to leave in two years' time? And that's a big problem. Penultimate word to Afra uh, on private schools or on their over-representation. Um, and 
What about London after the EU? Just That's, that I, I, I'm holding that okay, one back okay. for the ultimate. I word. still can't believe we haven't actually mentioned the B word yet. It's remarkable. We have once. Not Voldemort, the other B word. Um, on private schools, thank you for asking. I, I, on schools more generally, I often think the elephant in the room is private schools and faith schools because there's lots of evidence that faith schools are an active driver against integration. And this isn't targeting any one ethnic group. This applies to Catholic schools, Church of England schools, Jewish schools, Muslim schools. By definition, faith schools are not an integrationist force. I know there are lots of faith schools that have good practice and interact with other schools and that you've been doing work to create joint sporting and other events. But um, I, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily against faith schools. I just wonder how you can have a national government policy that's pro-integration and that also supports faith schools because voters like faith schools so that's why politicians often don't like to say how problematic they can be private schools are problematic in a different way because they further privilege and uh, exclusion of people from lower income backgrounds and full disclosure I went to a private school, my daughter is at a private school and it's something that I really wrestle with, I live in a catchment area where middle class parents strategically buy homes close to state schools so the state school I was offered was an hour away where I wanted my daughter to go to state school so I, it was a choice between I, and I actually tell people it was cheaper to send my daughter to private school than to buy a house that would allow me to go to state school which is crazy which is the way the system gets exploited and abused I think we should live in a society where children can go to the nearest local school and get a good education and that is what I would like to work towards and I think until we have that people are going to strategically buy houses or they're going to pay for private education so um, I think rather than necessarily blame the parents who do that, we should look at the reasons why. And the reasons are because we do not have consistently good education in our state schools. And I can't think of anything more important for government to do. So that's something that I feel very passionately about. The last word to you, uh, and it was, the question was London outside the EU. Well, can, can I just firstly make this point about London? So, so in London, there are, one, there are more than one million EU citizens and they're Londoners by the way uh, and one of the reasons why we are the greatest city in the world is the contribution made by these EU citizens and here's the problem since June 2016 they've felt anxious, scared and concerned about the future in our city so the first thing we did after the referendum result was to start a campaign three simple words London is open and the reason why we began that campaign was because we don't want, do want an impression to be created that because of the Brexit vote, we're somehow, we're somehow going to stop being open-minded, outward-looking, pluralistic. We are not. And it's really important we recognise the contribution made by these uh, uh, EU citizens. So on the 21st of September, on the 21st of September, we're opening up City Hall. We're going to have lawyers, experts and others giving advice to any Londoner who is worried about their future. Please go to the website, go to Talk London. Uh, or, and look up the details of uh, this important day. And we're also doing outreach work to try and make it easy for Londoners uh, to have their s uh, status secured. And let me tell you why I'm concerned. There are more than 3.3 million EU citizens in the country, more than 1 million in London. If just 10%, if just 10% don't register, that's 100,000 in London, 330,000 in uh, the UK, if Boris Johnson and Priti Patel are correct in that they're going to end free movement of Labour a day after we leave the EU with a no-deal Brexit, 
those Londoners will have a serious problem. That's why we, please come to us for advice. We'll advise you what to do and we'll reassure you. In the question in relation to uh, London's future outside the EU, look, I've been lobbied extensively uh, by this uh, attractive idea for London to become a city-state. Now, let me just be frank. There are many <coughs> reasons why uh, me unilaterally declaring independence is attractive. <laughs> I quite like El Presidente. <laughs> there, there, I mean, I mean uh, London was the only region to vote to remain in the EU. Uh, Scotland, outside England, voted to remain in the EU. It's also it's even been suggested that we build a flyover from London to Scotland. Um, <laughs> Uh, but look, I believe in the nation state. I believe uh, that, you know, one of the reasons why London is a great city is because of uh, Manchester and Liverpool and Sheffield and Cardiff and Burnley and uh, Brighton. Uh, and I believe actually those with the broader shoulders should carry the greatest weight. So London should contribute towards the economic prosperity, the, the social prosperity, the cultural prosperity of other parts of the uh, country. What I'd rather do is, as the Mayor of London, uh, argue with the government and explain to them why actually, uh, you know, we are a European city, we are an international uh, city. Actually, uh, you know, if you look at the history of our continent over the last uh, 70 years, the biggest achievement of the European Union is the fact we've had no world war and no major war in Europe over the last uh, 70 years. My generation has grown up having mates who are French origin, German origin, Spanish origin, Polish origin, whereas my father's generation uh, was suspicious of our European uh, colleagues, and I genuinely, genuinely think that a, a, a no-deal Brexit will be catastrophic for our country, and I think it's really important for those of us who care about progressive values and understand the history of our country, do whatever we can to avoid any Brexit whatsoever. Thank you. to have a senior Labour politician who has a completely comprehensible view on Brexit. Uh, absolutely, though we did say we were going to get through the session without mentioning the B word, um, so we left it till the end. Um, I've learned a whole bunch of things tonight. I'm not going to rehearse what they were. I, one of the things I did learn, though, was that I've been mispronouncing you, both your names, um, um, as I suspect have many of us, so apologies for that. Um, I wanted to thank you both. It's been an honour to have you here. These are important conversations, and we're very grateful uh, for you to uh, come to the LSE and share your uh, insights with us. I want to thank anyone in a red T-shirt. Um, it's, uh, you've helped us in all... It will be no surprise to you that um, making these things happen involves lots and lots of people, most of whose names we don't know, but many of them are in the front rows here. I would like to thank in particular my colleague David Robinson, who has been instrumental in the LSE's uh, invitation uh, to both our guests. And I would like to thank you not only for your presence, but for your questions. Thank you.